We'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. And while they're doing that, let me invite you, if you brought your Bibles with you, to turn to Nehemiah chapter uh, 2. I apologize ahead of time. I do have a little cold, so um, it's pretty normal for me up here to be (laughs) doing this. I love that uh, song we just sang. It reminds me so much of the Psalms. Um, I love that the Psalms calls our God the God of Jacob. If you remember, when God wrestled with Jacob, he changed his name to Israel. And yet the Bible continues to refer to him as the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob, uh, Jacob, his old name was a man that was marked by trickery, by deceit, by sin. And yet, that still becomes the name that the people of God called their God, the God of Jacob. That he was my God even in my sin. He was my God even in my um, shame. As we start today, I just want us to be consciously aware of just the heaviness that a lot of us are walking in. Um, Personally... Um, with the conditions of the world around us. Um, took me $100 to fill up my car yesterday. That's heavy right there, just in and of itself. Uh, the war in Ukraine. This week, one of my former teenagers uh, took her own life. It's heavy. And I want us to rightly learn to lament and mourn over the brokenness around us and remind ourselves that this is not the way that God intended the world to be. Psalms 46, it echoes a lot of the truths we just sang, has become very near and dear to my heart. I read it before prayer. I want to read this quick passage, and you might write this down when your heart feels heavy. This is the passage to turn to. It brings so much comfort to me. Psalms 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A very present help. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, that the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. God utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, our fortress. So be reminded, friends, that we are people who pray, we are people who mourn and lament, we are people who show compassion and grace. We're not fearful, but comforted and centered because the Lord of the host is with us. That one phrase, that he is a very present help in trouble, I just love it. He doesn't just give good advice when we're in trouble. (laughs) He doesn't encourage us from afar. He is a very present help. I want to pray for us, and then we'll move in. God, thank you for just your gift of grace and mercy. 
Thank you that you're a very present help. Our hearts are heavy, some, some heavier than others, <clears throat> walking through difficult times, discouraged. Others feel the consequences and weight of their own sin. We all feel the weight of the brokenness around us, the brokenness in us. We are the fellowship of the broken, the heavy-hearted, the discouraged sometimes. And yet at the same time, we are adopted into your family, given the birthright, an heir to the kingdom, clothed in majesty, courageous and bold. So God, help us to live in who you have made us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you know, we're in, the, um, we're in week five of a generosity initiative called Above and Beyond. We serve an above and beyond God, and he has asked us to live above and beyond lives, and he's given us that very opportunity, and with you in your little packet was an above and beyond card. This is a new card that you fill out, and I don't want you to do anything with it today. Uh, we're going to turn that in on the 27th. Um, for the next three weeks, my uh, request of you is that you would actively be praying how you might participate in this strategic step uh, of our church. Someone told me today about uh, just their, their young child uh, gathering up uh, money that had been given to them for birthdays and setting aside some for the new building. I want this to go to the new building. And I love that. And God rejoices over that in such an incredible way. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next uh, few weeks. Um, a couple important dates. Next Sunday, weather permitting, we're going to gather that evening at the, the new property, and we're going to just pray over that property. Now, there's nothing there. There's not even a driveway. It is a field. We're going to try to get it cut. So if it rains, we're not going to be able to do it. We might have a porta potty out there. I'm not sure. Um, so bring some, bring some camping chairs if you want. It's not going to be a real lengthy time. Uh, we are going to gather and we're going to pray. We're going to ask God that he would do something amazing on that spot. As he already is. There's so many God stories surrounding this already. For those of you who aren't a part of our church, your guests with us, uh, this is not for you. Um, you kind of walked in on this family meeting. I I'm glad you're here. You're welcome to sit at the table uh, to learn more. I don't want you to feel any kind of compulsion. If you want to join in, please do. But don't feel any kind of urging from us. And if you're not a Christian, let me just remind you that God doesn't want anything from you. Salvation is a gift of priceless value that God wants to give to you. And I don't want this to uh, uh, convolute that. I've told you many times also as well that if you've been hurt by the church, you have a problem trusting the church, I'm fine with you giving somewhere else until you learn to trust us. I would rather you go above and beyond and be generous somewhere than to let your skepticism keep you from genuine discipleship. All that being said, this is how we're going to fund our mission. God has given us an extraordinary season of favor as a church, allowing us to grow and reach more people. And above and beyond is how we, as a faith family, respond to God's movement, to this kairos moment. Sometimes we use that word. It's how we expand our ministries to better disciple our families, to reach our neighbor, neighbors, to take the gospel to the world. When our team began praying about this above and beyond initiative, 
I had a lot of work to do in my own heart. We got together months and months and months ago as we've been praying about this and got a whiteboard and we asked, what are our goals? Of course, there's the financial goal, but it actually came in last. The first is we wanted to see our people grow in maturity by learning to hear and obey, to live every day trusting in God, to build a legacy for the generations coming behind us, those kiddos we de uh, dedicated today, the courageous ones we baptized a few weeks ago. I like the phrase, even multiply our legacy, that we would have a space that they can come back to and remember what God had told them and how he worked in their lives. And so that we could expand our reach. Covenant is a unique church for sure. We're about the mission of God. Church planting is um, just burning on our hearts. Discipling our kids and family. Sharing the heart of Jesus for the last, the lost, and least. And a new facility just helps us facilitate that mission even more. It just exponentially multiplies the platform that we can do that from. So don't do anything with that card today. Just put it in a place where you'll see it this week, maybe every day, and ask God, God, what would you have me give? And whatever that number is, some of you, you are barely making it financially. I was talking to the Lord this week and said, God, didn't you know about the inflation? Why did you lead us to do this now? I can't even afford to put gas in my car. Like, how am I going to sacrificially and generously give above and beyond? I feel like I'm already giving. And he said, Luke, this has nothing to do with your capacity. This has everything to do with whether or not you trust me. And so I want to echo that to you. So why don't you just pray that? Lord, what would you have me give? And if that's a dollar or 50 cents, let, let it be that. If it's really going to stretch you and it's going to be a big number, let it be that. So ask God what he would have you give and risk obeying him. Today we're going to turn, uh, return to Nehemiah. We started a couple weeks ago. Uh, three weeks ago, then we had Disciple Now Sunday, and then Jason uh, preached last week on the kingdom currencies. <clears throat> and I want to get back to uh, Nehemiah. I had so much fun in Nehemiah. I think there's so much left there. We preached through Nehemiah in 20-something weeks, uh, the first year of our church. And um, what took Nehemiah 52 days to build the wall, it took us half a year to talk about him building the wall. Um, but I want to return to this story. Nehemiah, chronologically, is one of the last books in the Old Testament, the same period as Ezra and Esther. And there's so much in this book. But I, I want to kind of, last, last time we really talked about Nehemiah the man. Nehemiah is the final effort in restoring the Israelite nations. Zerubbabel had returned and uh, repaired the temple and it was still a mess to look at. It said when he finished repairing it, the people wept at its steps. Ezra came back to restore worship and sacrifices. He's the priest. You're going to see him even a little bit today. But the people couldn't return life as normal because they had no protection. They had no definition. They had no walls. So finally, Nehemiah is going to return to finish off this process that allows them to implement their culture, to be a people once again, a way of life, to be a light to the nations. And again, last sermon, just if you missed that one, and I know it's been a couple of weeks, we talked about Nehemiah the man. We talked about listening, that God gave Nehemiah the heart of Jesus for that city. We talked about praying. 
Nehemiah knew this would take a supernatural step of faith, and God did more in an instance than Nehemiah could have done in a thousand years. We talked about waiting. Waiting is as much a posture of our hearts as it is a reference to time. We can never hurry the plans of God no matter how hard we try. And then acting. He took holy initiative to get the work done. He said, let us arise and build. And so they put their hands to the good work. Today I want to focus more on the remnant. The people of God. Not just Nehemiah the man. Of course, he's part of the story. But he's not the central figure of the story. The central figure is the work of God among them. So let's focus on the remnant, who the people became. In Nehemiah 2, let me read the passage starting in verse 17. Nehemiah 2, 17. Then I said to them, you see the, <clears throat> you see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and build till they strengthen their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem, the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said... What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We are his servants. And we, his servants, will arise and build. You have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Four things about the people. I'm going to call them the remnant because that's what chapter 1 calls them. When his friends returned to Nehemiah, remember Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the king, had this prestigious position serving the Persian king. The Persian king had already made clear his thoughts on Jerusalem. He did not want to rebuild the city. You look at that in in the book of Ezra records that. But Nehemiah followed the burden of his friends. And his friends said, you know, the remnant has returned, but the city's in shambles because the gates are burned and the walls are broken. And so this remnant is trying to restore this picture. We sang a minute ago um, uh, about Zion. And I remember growing up as a kid, we sang hymns. Um, we used to sing this hymn, Marching to Zion. And I had no idea where Zion was and, or why we had to march there. I remember, I remember one time asking, like, where in the world is Zion and when are we going to get there? This is a picture of the promised land. It's really a picture of, of heaven itself. Um, that one day that we will be gathered in this perfect city with God without sin. And this remnant is working to be a, <clears throat> a physical display of what that might look like on earth. Four principles that it takes, that holy initiative, how holy initiative plays out amongst the people Here in the book of Nehemiah, and I think it's got a lot of application for us. One, a clarified vision. A clarity of vision. The burden in his heart, a hundred days of prayer, actually took the form of real needs and real solutions. He sat in the presence of the king, and the king asked him, if you go back to chapter 1, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? 
And he doesn't say, well, King, let me pray for it, uh, about it a few days. No, immediately he knew. He had clarity of vision. He asked very boldly for permission to be reassigned to Judah for a, a whole year, for letters from the governor so that I can pass through without hassle enough lumber to rebuild the gates for the city of Jerusalem and for his own house, a small army and horses. He knew in his heart because he had spent 100 days praying and thinking and planning. So when the moment was right, he was able to speak with a clarity of vision. Nehemiah knew something that we should be reminded of today, that where God guides, he provides. We started this above and beyond with the illustration of my little kids jumping to me in the pool. And they had to be convinced that... My arms were strong enough to catch them and that my heart was good that I wasn't going to play a trick on them. And this is what God is trying to remind us of every moment of every day that his heart is good and that his arms are strong. I get asked this all the time as a pastor when we talk about vision and about the will of God. What is God's will for my life? And what they typically mean is where should I go to school or who should I marry or what job should I take? When it comes to the will of God, there are really two tiers. Tier one is what God has already revealed in Scripture. It's not nebulous at all. What is God's will for your life as a teenager, a college student, or adult? Ask me that. I said, well, it's to do what God has revealed in Scripture for you to do. 1 Thessalonians 4 said, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Do what God has clearly revealed. When you neglect the revealed will of God, rarely do you get clarity on his personal will. Lord, I want you to show me who to marry. But I'm not ready to stop sleeping around or looking at porn. Lord, deliver me from this porn problem. But people aren't willing to work to remove it as a temptation to go see a counselor, to fast for media. They give all the excuses. Lord, I want to get out of debt, but I'm not willing to give to the kingdom of God. Lord, I want to grow in the kingdom of God, but I'm not willing to forgive someone from my past. Lord, I want to move in the power of God, but I'm not willing to grow in the discipline of prayer. I'm I'm amazed at how clearly God clarifies the specific vision of my life when I'm actively seeking to obey the revealed word of God. The tier two decisions, the job, the spouse, etc., just become so much clearer when we are posturing ourselves in obedience to what he has already revealed. And this is what we see in Nehemiah. We see a clarity of vision, and not just in him, but in the people. Because the people, as Nehemiah returns, the people join Nehemiah in this work, and they sacrifice greatly to see this accomplished. Friends, do you have a clarity of vision today, of what God's calling you to, of what your life is to be about, of the very reason that you're here A clarity of vision, but second, a posture toward action. This is a fun point to preach, and it's going to be my shortest point, but I love action. I want to get it done. Let's talk about it for a minute, and then let somebody do something. Let's let's do the wrong thing if we have to. Let's just go do something. A posture toward action, and here's what I mean. God will rarely do for you what he wants to do through you. He will rarely do for you what he wants to do through you. 
I feel like in the church today we have a, a crisis of spiritual helplessness. And it was a crisis even way back in Jesus' day. James remind us, reminds us that you, you have not because you ask not. Well, God's just going to do what he's going to do. And I'll just sit and wait on that. The problem with that idea is the Bible. We can't just pray for more people to come to Christ. We have to actively go out and do the work of an evangelist to share the gospel. We can't just pray that <clears throat> racial strife would come to an end. We have to be reconcilers. We'll, we'll just pray about it. Listen, I am all for prayer, and I want us to be a praying church. Jesus said that's what we should be. My house shall be called a house of prayer. But we've turned so much of prayer into hopeful resignation. And that's not what it was ever meant to be. Jesus talked about prayer with the parable of the persistent widow. To keep seeking, to keep knocking. Or in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about it with the armor of God that we would take the sword of the Spirit praying. God will rarely do for you what he wants to do through you. There are brokenness all around us. And he is actively calling you to play a part in the restoration of it. And the renewal of it. Maybe I could say it this way. Don't try to outsource what God's trying to insource. We pray for God to save our kids. To bring them salvation and rightly so. But we also model a transformed life and we teach them the truths of God's word. I heard a counselor say last week, the only way not to screw up your kids is not to have any. We're going to screw them up. We're fallen sinners. We make mistakes. We are not a perfect picture of the love of God to our kids. We're going to make mistakes all the time. But we seek to live a life of dependence on the gospel. God wants you to be the first voice, the primary voice in the life of your kids. That's what Jamie was talking about as we dedicated these beautiful babies a minute ago. The church is to be a second voice. So you see how this works. There's, there's working and actively seeking and pursuing. We set the sail and we pray for the wind to blow. Both are true. It says not hopeful resignation. Oh, God's just going to do what he's going to do. No, this is us praying and us acting. This is a posture towards action. <clears throat> and if God has placed a burden on your heart for something... Friends, my encouragement to you is to take a step of faith in that area, to get certified to foster, to email an adoption agency, to tell a coworker that you're a believer in Jesus, to admit some of your own doubts, to start giving to the mission of God, to take a step. And some of you have done that. You took a step just by coming here today. You've been out of church maybe for a very long time, and the fact that you've come is your step of faith, and I want to commend you for that. But God's going to keep asking you to take more steps because that's what it means to walk with him. It's this posture towards action. This is what we see of Nehemiah. It's what we see of the people. When Nehemiah came, he found a bunch of just deflated people and some enemies that around them that were always speaking negative things into the situation. We met a couple of those here today in the text. But they rose up and they put their hands to the good work. They had a posture towards action. 
Third, a dedicated team. The clarity of vision, a posture towards action, and then a dedicated team. And this is not a trivial point. They were able to build the wall in 52 days, walls that had been wrecked for 150 years. And they were able to rebuild them in 52 days. Sanballat, one of the guys that you met today, he even insulted Nehemiah and said, the gates, I mean, the walls are in such bad shape, a fox couldn't even walk on them. And to spite them, this is cool if you get to the end of the chapter, and I think it's chapter 12, they're doing this like celebration. And instead of doing the celebration in the city, they did the celebration on the wall as to say to Sanballat, a fox couldn't walk on them, and now we have thousands of people. And this was not just because of Nehemiah's incredible leadership, but because of the willing for, willingness of nearly everyone to roll up their sleeves and get to work on the gate that was in front of them. You can read all of Nehemiah 3. We won't read the whole thing, just a little part of it here in a second. It might, want to be the, it might be one of the most boring chapters in the Bible. There's 32 verses, listen, 38 groups of people, names that you can't, can't pr- pronounce, rebuilding a 22-foot-thick wall of Jerusalem. And at first glance, the chapter is just great cure for insomnia. But when we look deeper, we see this incredible example of delegation and involvement and teamwork. Nehemiah made a huge difference because they got so many people involved in the project. And if you read through chapter 3, and again, we're not going to read the whole thing, you notice that there are three responses, basically, to Nehemiah. When he's recruiting the team to go do the work, First, there was ridicule, ridicule by Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. We met them just a few minutes ago. Some people are going to respond to the task by criticizing, by complaining, by being negative. They just try to throw water on your passion. Another response is seen in verse 5 of chapter 3. Next were the people from Tekoa, though their leaders refused to help. This is one of the tribes living in the, within the broken down walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah gives his best speech and yet they just aren't impressed. They just refuse to help. You ever, you ever known anybody like that that just refused to help? Growing up, I kind of... My dad was, he had a posture towards action. We're just going to fix it. And we kind of fixed everything in the house. We didn't have the money to hire a plumber or an electrician. And so we just figured it out. Anybody ever raised like your main job was holding the light for your dad to fix something? It took a lot of skill to hold that light in the right place. I mean, for hours, you would have to hold that thing, right? <clears throat> I had a friend live with me for several, uh, for several months during a transition period. It was after Ashley and I had gotten married. And he would just sit on the couch and watch me do projects around the house. Now, I mean, he was a guest at my house, but he was living there for free. So the, the best he could do it is like, come help. My dad would always tell me, Luke, you can't get anything done with your hands in your pockets. And that's what I wanted to tell Wade every time. When we planted this church, we had several friends that we invited to come be a part of this. And <laughs> they would tell us, hey, Call us back when you have an active youth group. And I was like, an active youth group? You come help build the youth group. Call us back when you have a building. 
Some people just don't want to be part of the work. They just refuse to help build it. But there was a third response to Nehemiah's asking, and that's what most of the chapter is about, that so many people got involved. Chapter 3 gives us 38 groups of people involved in the project. Verse 5 of chapter 3 says, Baruch, son of Zakali, zealously repaired another section. Not only did he get involved, he did it with zeal and eagerness and diligence and enthusiasm. And then not only did he do his wall, he did some of the wall next to him. Verse 27 of chapter 3 says these men of Tekoa, remember their leaders decided that they would not work. Their leaders didn't work, but they did double duty. They got involved. They put their hands to the work. Verse 28, let me read this one to you. If you have it, I don't think it's on the screen. Beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs each in front of his own house. I just love that, each in front of his own house. They all rolled up their sleeves and they repaired the wall and the gates in front of their own house. Zadok, the son of Imer, made repairs in front of his own house. And then Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, keeper of the east gate, he made repairs. And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah repaired another section, and him Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his own dwelling. This is cool if you do a little, I kind of geeked out on that this a little bit this week, and I'm not going to go too much into it, but Shemaiah, the keeper of the east gate, apparently the gate in front of his house was in good condition, so he pitched in and helped at the next gate, the horse gate. His unselfishness, a great example. Then Meshulam, he didn't even have a house. It says that he made the repairs in front of his dwelling. The Hebrew word there is actually like a, like a, like a lean-to. He just had like a little tent out there. He had just one small room, yet he was devoted to God and to the work of rebuilding the walls. It's better to be devoted to God in one small room than to have a mansion but have a heart cold to God. Another thing about this and this dedicated teamwork is that the wall was continuous. Any gap compromised the entire structure. Therefore, each space at the wall was important. If someone didn't think it was and didn't repair that one part, then they, they, they would have a weakness. They would have a place where the enemy could enter in. The wall could never be strong if someone was tearing it down in a different section. The point really is this, is it pleased God to see his people working together in one accord with one heart and with one mind. And friends, God's going to put us into situations where we must work together. To learn how to lead, to learn how to follow, to learn how to work with one heart and one mind. Isn't it interesting that all the spiritual gifts, how he didn't give any one person all the spiritual gifts. Paul says he just kind of diversified them in different people. And the other unique thing is that he made the gifts dependent upon each other. That you, you don't have the gift in full. You have to link arms with someone else to actually have this exponential, synergistic work as your gifts work together. He would even use the illustration Paul would of the body. What good is a knee without a leg or a toe without a foot? These must work together. 
a dedicated team. Then finally, a lasting endurance. This idea of endurance is in almost every chapter of, of, of Nehemiah. In 2, verse 19, the passage we read earlier, we meet the, uh, we meet the trio that comes against him, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. It said there, they jeered at us and despised us. Mocking and despising. Have you ever been excited about what God might do in your life? What he might be leading you to do, whether it's adopt or to give or to share your faith or whatever it is. And you tell the wrong person and they mock and despise. They tell you how hard that's going to be to do. They tell you you have no place to it. Have you ever heard that even from the enemy? In your own mind, who are you? To be leading a DG. Who are you to lead a missional community? Who, who do you think you are? We actually saw the first resistance in verse 10. And this is their job throughout all of this book. So much so that, remember, we're reading Nehemiah's journal. That he includes this in the journal entry. These three men. Friends, in nearly every step of the Christian life, there's going to be resistance, criticism. The gospel itself is offensive. The word of God, the word of truth is offensive to those living opposed to it. Death to those that are perishing, the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's why the first attack that they brought to Nehemiah was opposing the work of God is to attack the word of God. Very similar to the attack, the lies of the enemy to Adam and Eve in the garden. Isn't it? Did God, did God really say? Do you really believe God's word is true? Every word of it? This is one of his old schemes to challenge the work of God and the word of God. Anything you do for God in the dark world we live in will be met with a certain amount of difficulty. Paul calls it a fight. He also calls it a war. There will always be people that respond to the vision by saying, this is out of your league. There's no way we can do this. Most of the time you'll succeed only if you persevere. And here's the thought here. When you walk by faith, you're going to be opposed by those who walk by sight. When you walk by faith, you're going to be opposed by those who walk by sight. And it's how you represent Jesus during criticism that will speak volumes to the watching world. Do you respond with self-righteousness? Does your pride well up? Can you pray for and love on those who criticize you while continuing to move forward with the vision? That's certainly what Jesus did. It's certainly what Nehemiah does. You know what I hate most about critics? Sometimes they're right. 
Have you ever noticed that God uses people that we blow off as critics to really share some parts of truth with us? It's during times of criticism that we show what we're made of. When we're squeezed, what comes out of us, death or life? What should come out of us is humility. And it's through humility that the gospel really moves forward. We use criticism as a way to assess the motive of our heart. And if we respond to criticism as always getting defensive, as always blowing up, it's a key that there's some pride issues in our heart that need to be dealt with. My encouragement is to listen to the criticism, evaluate it. I ask these three questions to see if the criticism is really valid. Does this person love Jesus? Does this person love the church? And does this person love me? And if those three things are true, there's probably some truth to the criticism that's coming out. We've got to admit, friends, that we all have blind spots. We all have things in our lives that we can't see. This is why we do life in community. Proverbs says the wounds of a friend can be trusted. That's why Solomon says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. That's why Paul says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one to each other, for we are members of one another. Do you get the picture? Criticism can be a good thing. Psalms 141.5, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. An example of this leadership, of learning from criticism, in his biography, uh, talks about Billy Graham, that he would meet with his critics, and he would take notes, and he would choose the humble way and would pray, God, is there any part of this that's true that I need to repent of? He would turn his critics into coaches, learning from them. That's typically not my first response. If you criticize me, I'm either mad at you or I'm mad at myself. That's not the humble way. Let's look at Nehemiah's response. He had caravaned over 800 miles, left the comfort of the palace, put his neck on the line, spent 100 days in prayer and repentance. All of this is what I have given to come to some apathetic, disillusioned people and some critics that don't even live here. But Nehemiah didn't start a fight, but he didn't back down either. This is what I love. This is the, in Nehemiah, this is the insert your favorite inspirational speech. Maybe it's Braveheart. That's an amazing one. Hoosiers. Maybe it's Winston Churchill in World War II, his famous speech. We're going to fight on the beaches. We're going to fight in the air. We're going to fight on the seas. Whatever it is, this is Nehemiah's speech. He learned the things from his critics, but he didn't dwell there. He did a quick arc check. He responded appropriately. He said, God's favor is on us. You have no right to shut down what God is doing. Verse 20. <clears throat> so I answered them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we are his servants will arise and build. You have no portion or right of memorial in Jerusalem. As you continue to read the book of Nehemiah, the criticism and opposition just pile up. Enemies outside, the families on the inside, it seems to come from everywhere. It is very discouraging, even as you read it. It would have been so much easier just to go back to the palace. But for some reason, Nehemiah and the remnant showed this 
lasting endurance. You ever felt like the last two years take some lasting endurance? Did he really care that much about the walls? I don't think, though. The secret is back in verse 12 where he said what God had put in his heart to do. That might be one of the most powerful phrases in this book, what God had put in his heart to do. How did William Carey labor for 18 years in India without one convert? Without one. God had put it in his heart to do it. What about J. Hudson Taylor, whom my little Hudson's named after? He almost started a world war in China and lost nearly everything to the missionary work that he did there. How did he continue? How did he endure? But God had put it in his heart. What about Adnan Judson? Took 12 years to make 18 converts in Burma, in prison, beaten, lost his kids to disease, but all the while worked to further the kingdom. What makes a guy like that so resilient? What God had put in his heart to do. Friends, what is it that you're doing only because God has put it in your heart to do it? Are you in this world for something? God says you are. You are created with a purpose and alive today with that purpose. Ephesians 2.10 talks about just not the generic work that we're to do, but the specific work. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a mission for you. He really does. Generally, it's the great commission to go and make disciples. That's for everyone. Commission given to every believer, not just the ones that went to seminary, the ones that have been saved for a long time. Friends, this is not a game. This is real. And there are thousands of people counting on us to get this right. We've been asking for five weeks now, God, what would you have me do? Some of you were risky enough to pray that prayer, and you keep praying it, meaning it, and God has told you. Some of you I've talked to have decided to go be foster parents. Some of you are praying about planting a church. Some of you are thinking about ways that you can sacrifice and give. Some of you... Asked that prayer and you actually took a step and crossed the line of faith. Became part of this faith family. It's not a prayer we pray one time. It should be a prayer we pray every day. God, what would you have me do? Let me close with this. If you have a Bible, flip over to Nehemiah 6. Verse 15. So the wall was finished <clears throat> on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, these are the three guys plus all the ones around them, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. 
And then what Psalms 46 says that we started off with, that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The people of Israel would sing about it for several thousand years, and we sing about it even today. The work had been accomplished with the help of our God. A.W. Tozer <clears throat> says this, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity we plan only the things we can do by ourselves. I want to close by just giving you some space to pray right where you're at. We're not going to have communion today. But I just want you to talk to God. We're going to sing in just a minute, but would you just ask that of him? God, what would you have me do? And just listen for the Spirit to speak to you. Again, I'd love for you to write it down if he speaks. You don't have to turn it into me, but I'd love to see it. I'd love to pray with you about it. God, you're good and gracious. Our refuge and strength. Our very present help in trouble. God, I can't help but correlate the brokenness of those walls with the brokenness of the culture that we live in. And exceedingly so, it seems to get worse by the day. it must be to grow up as a kid or teenager in this age but God you are a refuge and strength I pray for us as a people as a faith family I pray God that you'd speak to our hearts I pray that we could say of ourselves as was said of this remnant they work together they had clarity of vision they endured God, you know our hearts. So would you speak to us about that? About what would you have us do? Maybe there's some sin that needs to be confessed. There's apathy that needs to be removed. Some in this room today need to take a step of faith, to cross a line of faith, to become part of a faith family. Lord, whatever it may be, would you lead us to do it? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Take some time and pray, and then we'll sing in just a moment.